there is the same overall grayness and lack of color about the figure. Although perfectly sharp, it was perhaps a little thin, as one would say of a photograph. No one, however, could possibly have suspected that it was not the figure of a living person. Boo. A passage from Ghost and Ghoul, written by T.C. Lethbridge. last time this season to the Monster's Lair, episode 10, season finale, on the subject of the Stone Tape Theory. The Stone Tape Theory is a scientific theory applied to paranormal activity to explain why it occurs in some locations and not others, and why it occurs in places with significant dark energy and dark history. In this episode, I will be using several purportedly haunted locations to apply the stone tape theory to, to use as examples to explain further what the thinking of this theory is 
and how it can be applied to explain certain paranormal phenomenon within certain sites. So without further ado, let's dive into the depths of stone tape theory. And I just want to say thank you for all of your patience, support, and listenership this season. I know it was a shortened season. I know there was weeks that I missed recording. I appreciate all of you sticking around, and I appreciate you listening to some of the older content and enjoying the episodes of TML Resurrected that I've been putting out, where I've revamped and revitalized some of the episodes from season one and two. Uh, can't thank you guys enough. Without you, you know, I'm just a guy talking into my phone about shit that no one cares about. And uh, I appreciate the messages that I receive from you guys. I really do appreciate having any fans at all because I thought that's what this eventually would end up being. Just me talking into my phone for no one to listen to. Um, But you guys have proven me wrong and I'm amazed by getting even one listen per episode, let alone as many as I do get. And I'm always blown away when I get personalized message from you guys and hear from you guys about how much you enjoy the content. I can't thank you guys enough. Like I said already, I'm just starting to repeat myself at this point. But it really is true. I appreciate all of your guys' support in this passion project. And uh, I just want to let you guys all know, you know, I did miss a couple weeks here. But you're going to get this season finale. This is it for season three. But as always, I will be producing some bonus content for your listening enjoyment. And um, just know that season four, I'm going to start working on immediately as soon as I wrap season three. Um, I'm going to bank a ton of episodes for season four early in advance. And um, I think season four is going to be a big deal. And I hope you guys enjoy what I have in store for you. I've already got a lot of ideas cooked up and uh, basically ready to record Um, So once March rolls around of next year and season four is ready to go, you guys are going to have so much ready-made content. It's just going to be a matter of publishing the episodes from week to week. And hopefully, uh, you know, it'll be what you guys have come to expect from the Monsters Lair. And if I'm really lucky, um, it'll be even better than what you guys have gotten in the past up to this point so far so keep an eye out for season four it's coming in march of next year i hope you enjoy this finale and once again like a broken record i appreciate all of your guys to support your listenership and supporting this passion project and um just basically thank you Why are some places haunted and not others? Why is there more activity associated with one location and not another? Why do different people from completely different backgrounds or even time periods often share the same experiences at the same location? Some believe these questions can be helped to be answered by the explanation of a paranormal theory known as the stone tape theory.
The stone tape theory is a paranormal theory that states that energy that generates ghosts and hauntings are similar to tape recordings and that mental impressions during emotional or traumatic events can be projected in the form of energy and like a literal tape be recorded and stored onto physical material such as rocks, wood, stone, concrete, dirt, and water and replay or reoccur under certain conditions. The stone tape theory is usually the main theory given as to why residual or reoccurring unintelligent hauntings happen. The name and main concept of the theory originate from a 1972 Christmas ghost story production produced by the BBC of the same name, The Stone Tape. Following the play's story production and popularity, the idea and the term stone tape began to be popularized to describe the belief of those who believed that ghosts were not spirits of the deceased, but were simply non-interactive recordings similar to a movie. A form and ideas contributing to expand upon the stone tape theory as it would come to be known were being developed and formed well before the BBC production that would give the theory its name. The idea that environmental elements are capable of storing traces of human thoughts or emotion was introduced by multiple 19th century scholars and philosophers as an attempt to provide natural explanations for supernatural phenomena. In 1837, the polymath Charles Babbage published a work on natural theology called the Ninth Bridgewater Treatise. Babbage speculated that spoken words leave permanent impressions in the air even though they become inaudible after time. He suggested that it is possible due to transfer of motion between particles. A precursor to stone tape theory was the concept of place memory. In the early days of the Society for Physical Research, a nonprofit organization sometimes known by the acronym SPR originated from a discussion between journalist Edmund Rogers and physicist William F. Barrett in the autumn of 1881. In this discussion, place memory was considered an, ex an explanation for ghostly apparitions seemingly connected with certain places. In the 19th century, two of the SPR-involved investigators, Edmund Gurney and Eleanor Sidgwick, presented views about certain buildings or materials possibly being capable of storing records of past events which can later be played back by gifted individuals. Based on these discussions and others like it, as well as other types of research, there was a conference held on the 5th and 6th of January 1882 at the headquarters of the British National Association of Spiritualists at which the foundation of the society was proposed. The committee included Barrett, Rogers, Stainton Moses, Charles Massey, Edmund Gurney, Heinsley Wedgwood, 
and Frederick W.H. Myers. The SPR was formally constituted on the 20th of February, 1882, with philosopher Henry Sidgwick as its first president. Another 19th century idea associated with the stone tape theory is psychometry, which is a belief that it is possible for some individuals to obtain knowledge about the history associated with an object through physical contact with said object. In the 20th century, the idea that objects are able to store and play back past events was reintroduced in 1939 and 1940 by then SPR President H. H. Price. Price speculated about psychic ether as a medium between the spiritual and physical realms which can enable objects to carry memory, traces of emotions or experiences from the past. In Price's works, he stated that the existence of such traces should be provable by means of scientific methods and that they yet remain unproven hypotheses. Following Price's ideas, later on in the 1960s, an archaeologist turned paranormal research by the name of T.C. Lethbridge claimed that past events can be stored in objects thanks to fields of energy that he believed to surround streams, forests, or mountains. His 1961 book, named Ghost and Ghoul, popularized these ideas, which allegedly most likely were believed to inspire the creators of the 1972 BBC play, The Stone Tape. Now that I have established some context around the Stone Tape theory, let's examine some cases of haunted locations where the stone tape theory is believed to be at play. On second thought, that was a lot of information all at once. Let me simplify it just a bit and break it down simply as saying, think of stone tape theory as similar to a tape recording. Um, basically, when a murder a tragic death, a sudden death, some major emotional tragic event occurs. Think of the building that it occurs in as like a sponge absorbing that energy. And then when certain sensitive individuals enter into that building, they can reactivate that energy and basically play it out just like a recording on a CD, a tape, even a digital recording on podcasts like this one. Basically, they see the playback of what occurred there. That's pretty much the most basic way to break down this theory and explain it. Borley Rectory was a house that sat in Borley, Essex, England, from 1862 until its demolition in 1944. The large Gothic-style rectory in the village of Borley had been alleged to be haunted ever since it was built in 1862 to house the rector of the parish of Borley and his family. It was badly damaged by fire in 1939 
and eventually demolished in 1944. Borley Rectory was a house famous for being described as, quote, the most haunted house in England by psychic researcher and member of the SPR, our old friend mentioned in the opening, Harry Price. By the year 1928, the ministry at Borley Parish had stood vacant for some time. Borley Rectory, a large, looming, Gothic Revival-style rectory, casting its foreboding shadow over the village and standing as four floors of rambling, ramshackle Victorian intimidation to all who may lay eyes upon its presence, sprawled across a bleak, wet Essex hillside, had little to offer any residence, let alone a distinguished rector or his wife. Its roof leaked, its plumbing was in hopeless disrepair, its corners and closets were cluttered with the debris and damages of ages gone by. Rats and mice infested its secret corridors behind the walls, and many of its rooms were unfinished. To the reverend here, Guy Eric Smith, the occupant and minister of this era, a man of middle age newly ordained to the ministry, all this did not matter. He believed a parish was a parish. What the Reverend Mr. Smith did not know, however, was that Borley Rectory was the haunt of not just mice and spiders, but was the haunt as well of what seemed to be the most active group of ghosts in all of England. A group of forms, figures, figments, visages that included that of a tall stranger in a top hat who paid bedside visits to unsuspecting parlor maids, an aged family butler long since dead, a sneaking, slinking, lurching and lurking prowler who went without a head, a phantom coach that rolled wildly through the front yard pulled behind a brace of phantom horses. A lady variously identified as one Arabella Waldegrave, the deceased daughter of a 17th century local lord, an English nun whose weakness for a monk in a monastery said to have occupied the rectory site had led to her being sealed up alive in a wall. A French nun, Marie Lurie, who had renounced her vows to become the bride of a Waldegrave, only to be strangled and buried in a cellar for her devotion. It was these tales and the experiences of Reverend Smith that would attract the attention, interest, and investigation of Price and the SPR. And an interesting and rare meeting of science and religion coming together to determine the cause of paranormal happenings. Called in by a London newspaper, to investigate Parson Smith's complaints, Harry sped to Borley Rectory on June 12, 1929. With Harry Price present, the old place began to come to life. Of the many claims Harry Price made of the things he saw in the rectory, some of the most vivid accounts 
were those of keys shooting out of their keyholes like projectiles, bells ringing with no one present to ring them, pebbles and candlesticks hurled through the air, rappings and tappings sounding from all sides of the building, and even the ghostly nun, Marie, putting in a polite yet terrifying appearance in the presence of the visitor. Price later wrote of his experiences at the site. It was a day to be remembered, even by an experienced investigator. Sixteen hours of thrills. From that time on, Borley Rectory's position as the number one haunted house of the land went virtually unchallenged. Tenants came and went, but a year never passed without someone new and startling accounts of Borley's restless specters. Years after the events, skeptics would claim that all of the activity at Borley could be explained away, pointing to few examples. An early rector, to whom some of the first ghostly visions appeared, was found to have been a chronic victim of a disease which caused him to sleep and to dream almost constantly. Price's own unpublished papers reveal that Miss Foister, the young wife of an aged and ineffective rector who followed the Smiths into Borley Rectory, showed a naughty tendency to fake ghostly manifestations. Also, Price himself, it turned out, was not above tossing a pebble or two from a well-stocked pocket to enliven a room. However, with the destruction of the rectory by fire in 1939, followed by the total demolition and finally the death of Harry Price of a heart attack in 1948, rendering the site unable to be investigated further and Price unable to rebuke his skeptics, the only ones who really know what happened inside the walls of Borley were those who lived there and those present during the investigation in 1929, and they're no longer around to speak on it. Unless, of course, you believe that they can speak from beyond. One of the most famous locations in the world for a residual haunting is the impressive, original, and completely insane Winchester Mystery House. The Winchester Mystery House is an architectural wonder and historic landmark in San Jose, California that was once the personal residence of Sarah Lockwood Pardee Winchester, the widow of William Wirt Winchester and heiress to a large portion of the Winchester Repeating Arms fortune. Tragedy befell Sarah when her infant daughter died of a childhood illness and a few years later her husband was taken from her by tuberculosis. Shortly after her husband's death, Sarah left her home in New Haven, Connecticut and moved out west to San Jose, California. There, she bought an eight-room farmhouse and began what could only be described 
as the world's longest home renovation, stopping only when she passed on September 5, 1922. From 1886 to 1922, construction seemingly never ceased as the original eight-foot, eight-room farmhouse grew into the world's most unusual and sprawling mansion, featuring 24,000 square feet of space, 10,000 windows, 2,000 doors, 160 rooms, 52 skylights, 47 stairways and fireplaces, 17 chimneys, 13 bathrooms, and 6 kitchens. Haunted legends and supernatural lore are well suited to the Winchester Mystery House. Under construction for 38 years by Sarah Winchester to allegedly appease the spirits of those lost to the Winchester Rifle, who some believe cursed the Winchester family. The house has been named one of the top 10 most haunted houses in America. Both guests and employees claim to have had real-life paranormal experiences. Purportedly experienced in the grand ballroom and the chilly basement of the estate is the residual haunting involving the famous wheelbarrow ghost, often purportedly seen with jet black hair, wearing white overalls, working on the fireplace, or sometimes pushing a wheelbarrow full of ash or coal down the halls of the mansion. The worker is, to be, is believed to be the ghostly apparition of a former worker known as Clyde, and it is said that he is a popular resident at the Winchester estate. It has been claimed by visitors, tour guides, and employees that Clyde definitely makes his appearance on a regular basis. Clyde is not said to be an intelligent haunting, but rather a residual manifestation of a man who once worked and possibly died on site of the home. As being someone who has recently visited the Winchester Mystery House in person, I have some unique insight. So let's hear some of our recordings from that very visit that I made for this very podcast. Babe, we're currently in the garden in the middle of the Winchester house. What are your first impressions? Uh, it's beautiful. It's pretty massive, right? Massive, serene. Could see how it could be a little creepy. Mm, no. Not yet? Not yet. Maybe later. It is no doubt that the Mystery House is an absolute marvel to behold, but it is far from the only area on the property that Miss Winchester spared no expense. Surrounding the property, dating back to when Sarah was in the residence in the late 1800s and up until her passing in 1922, the gardens of what was once known as Lenata Villa, now known as Winchester Mystery House, have been admired for their beauty and variety. With over 10,000 box hedges, and hundreds of varieties of tree and plant life, the Winchester Mystery House is quite the example of beautiful flora and fauna. Sarah Winchester was well known for her fondness of beautiful plants, both inside her home 
and within her extensive exterior landscaping. Many of her original trees still remain on the estate, including an impressive collection of such botanica as the saucer magnolia tree, spartan juniper, and creeper trumpet vine. In addition to her eclectic tree collection, she was also a keeper of exotic birds who once occupied the aviary still standing on the site. There are two landscaping elements that visitors often overlook while on the property. Though the decades various teams of gardeners have maintained the grounds and have not only been responsible for maintaining many of the rare plants, shrubbery and trees, but also caring for some special topiary designs. In the front gardens, for instance, near the south, outside of what is called the building's witch's cap, guests can find a large hedge cut in the shape of a numerical 13. When you arrive at the Winchester Mystery House, you'll also see another unusual hedge, this time near the gift shop exit. It's a giant W for Winchester. Featured prominently in the gardens are striking statuary and fountains. Some of the standout features being the statue of a Native American gazing across the gardens at a stately buck high above the hedges, allegedly commissioned by Sarah to placate the spirits of some of those killed by the Winchester rifle. Flanking the entrance of the home, outside the front doors, are statues of Hebe and Demeter, Greek goddesses of youth and the harvest, beckoning you in. Rounding out the gardens are the egret, the cherub, and the serpent fountains, all beautiful and all still functioning. In 1884, Sarah, with the base of the small two-story farmhouse serving as her foundation, began designing her mysterious labyrinthian mansion. Carpenters were hired and worked on the house day and night for years, continuously until parts of the home rose to seven stories. Sarah directed the additions herself, augmenting the building in a seemingly haphazard fashion. The home contains numerous oddities, such as doors and stairs that go to nowhere, windows overlooking other rooms, and stairs with oddly-sized risers. Environmental psychologists have theorized that the house's odd layout itself contributes to the feeling that it was, and perhaps still is, haunted. Upon closer examination, it appears that Sarah Winchester was actually quite ingenious and innovative in her designs for the home. The house is predominantly made of redwood, as Miss Winchester preferred the wood. Redwood itself is termite-resistant, strong, sturdy, and was locally sourced in California, which made it less expensive and readily available. The only downside was that Sarah disliked the look of it. She, therefore, demanded that a faux grain and stain be applied to all redwood surfaces to brighten up the appearance. This is why almost the wood in the home, this is why almost all of the wood in the home is covered. Approximately 20,500 gallons or 78,000 liters of paint were required to paint the house. Another unique aspect of the house is that it was built on a floating foundation. 
This type of floating foundation construction allows the home to shift freely as it is not completely attached to its brick base. This is believed to have saved the home from total collapse after the devastating 1906 earthquake that toppled the seven-story tower of the home and destroyed several rooms, even trapping Sarah herself in one room for hours until she could be found and rescued by her staff. After this event, Sarah decided to cap the home at the level of four stories. A decision that protected the home from another future earthquake, the infamous 1989 Loma Prieta quake that devastated California's Bay Area even years after Sarah Winchester's passing. Post-1906, the home features 161 rooms, including 40 bedrooms, two ballrooms, one completed and one unfinished, as well as 47 fireplaces, over 10,000 panes of glass, 17 chimneys with evidence of two others existing, two basement levels, and three elevators. The home has gold and silver chandeliers, hand-inlaid parquet floors, and trim in a vast array of colors and materials. Due to Miss Winchester's debilitating arthritis, special Easy Riser steroids were installed as a replacement for her original steep construction. In addition, stairwells were made extremely narrow to optimize Sarah's balance and stability. This allowed her to move about her home freely as she was only able to raise each foot a few inches. Other features unique to the home, especially for its time, included steam and forced air heating, modern indoor toilets and plumbing, push-button gas lights, and Miss Winchester's personal and only hot shower from indoor plumbing. There are also three elevators, including an Otis Electric, and one of which was powered by a rare horizontal hydraulic elevator piston. Most elevator pistons are vertical to save space, but Winchester preferred the improved functionality of the horizontal configuration. As for decor and styles for the home, Miss Winchester never skimped on the many adornments that she believed contributed to its architectural beauty. Among the most striking of these features are some of the home's stained glass windows, some designed specifically for her, including a spiderweb window that featured her favorite web design and the repetition of the number 13, which had special spiritual symbolism to her. The specialized custom design and uniqueness of the home make a value of it today inestimable. The true worth of the home is as a truly original California landmark, a time capsule of the very specific and unique Victorian era from the country's past, a symbol of resilience, as a glimpse into one of a, the one-of-a-kind mind of a truly fascinating subject, and as a conversation piece to spark the topics of imagination, spiritualism, the afterlife, history, mystery, and the unknown of what lies beyond human mortality. finished the Winchester tour not that long ago um, what was your favorite room uh, Sarah's bedroom would be my favorite room what was your favorite things about it she had this crazy bed it was very uh, ornately decorated um, 
with like a not so much like a four poster bed but it had a like a arch above it that was pretty neat also all of the um, embossed wall texturing throughout the whole house was probably my favorite as well I love Victorian architecture was there anything that you saw there that you didn't expect to see today that kind of caught you off guard uh no I mean the Winchester Ministry House has been on TV and and you know you've heard about it especially growing up here in California you've heard about it pretty much all your life and so you kind of already know what to expect when you go but uh, finding out more about how she treated her staff was probably the most surprising about how well she treated her staff and how well paid and taken care of they were yes I thought it was interesting specifically as far as the women's staff go it seemed like they had very important duties in the house almost like she trusted the female staff members more with right. things being done specifically her own personal health care finding out that she had a regular nurse living in the house with her that was her daily nurse and took care of her everyday health in and out was very interesting yeah i had no idea about that um <clears throat> i mean even uh, employing her own niece to be her secretary uh, even though her niece you know was married and independently wealthy because of marriage she still was you know working for Sarah and in a power position because I mean being the secretary for someone that rich and famous I mean I'm sure there's a lot of work to go around in that position what was your least favorite room in the house or least favorite feature um, there were these switchback staircases that were not made for uh, a large framed person. So, you know, Sarah was so tiny that she could fit through tiny doors and tiny stairwell stairwells, but the average American now would have trouble going through there. Now, I've always heard that people, you know, like back in the 1900s, 1800s, were just smaller in stature in general, but I had no idea how really small that she was specifically. I had no idea she was only at the height of 4'10", and um, like Christy was saying, a lot of those switchback staircases and just the stairs in general and doorways and hallways were made specifically for Sarah Winchester in particular. And your average American person who goes about the average height of six foot might need to duck or have some trouble navigating some of those more narrow staircases and smaller areas of the house. But then I find it funny because you go through these narrow, like almost claustrophobic staircases, turn a corner and walk into these massive open area ballrooms and huge open area vaulted ceiling rooms and things of that nature so that was kind of interesting well even just the size of the step itself my whole foot could not fit on a step and I might like my heel would be dangling off the back and the height of them which I mean the tour guide explained why they were so little but it's just uh, 
you know, made for a tiny, tiny person. Yeah. Well, at first I thought those stairs were crazy, but then when he explained it was because she had, like, horrible arthritis throughout her entire body and had those made specifically so that she could easily get up the stairs, it made sense. But it didn't make it any more comfortable to walk up and down. I didn't, I mean, I didn't think of her as a vain person. So finding out that when she was in her open carriage, she sat on a booster seat and covered her legs with a footstool to make herself appear average height. I thought that was interesting. It's interesting, yeah. I also thought it was interesting that she had all those rooms and all that stuff and according to the tour guide really didn't have that many visitors never any guests ever he said there was only three people before she passed away that had ever gone through the front doors and one of them was the construction worker yeah so that that was interesting to find out that she had this massive palatial estate but didn't really entertain that much um, what did you feel about the seance room? Um, it was smaller than I expected it to be. Um, and obviously there's no, no windows. She really just locked herself up in there by herself every single night. Um, with just no, no way for anybody else to get in there. She had the only key. Um, but it was very cramped, very tiny. Yeah, and it was interesting that she had no windows in there, but three doors. But only one entrance. Yeah, one door was only one way in, one way out. One door, if you go in it and shut it, it then firmly secures behind you, and there's no way to go back. And then one door led out into... A drop-off. A drop-off that would have taken you eight feet down in the middle of the kitchen. Yes. So that's kind of interesting strange but then again like the tour guide said no one knows really why she did things like that there's two theories out there one theory being that the spirits of the house told her to build it that way another theory was that she built it that way to confuse the spirits of the house so they couldn't chase her around and then one theory was that she just liked making crazy weird architectural decisions for no real apparent reason so it was kind of interesting to learn all that. Her grand ballroom was very uh, interesting as well. Yeah, it was very ornate. Which is more of how I pictured the seance room being. Right. But that was, I guess, more of my mental image in my mind's eye of what a seance room would look like in like certain movies and things of that nature. So, going in there and not seeing, like, really any ornamentation. No, it was or just any, a plain room. Yeah, any wall decorative, you know, decorations or no pictures, no nothing, no windows. It didn't even really have any wallpaper or texture on the walls. It was just a walled-off room with iron bars securing it in and three doors and no windows. It was kind of interesting to see that that was her own personal space and it really had no character or personality to it whatsoever. Um, and then that one door that leads out to her secret passageway was quite interesting. That took her directly to her own bedroom. Yes. <clears throat> um, did you ever feel scared or like there was something strange going on while you were in there? No. Me neither. Not really. 
and the kids said they didn't really either, so it's interesting, could it could just be our luck, could just be there's nothing going on today, could be that there was a lot of people there, and... We were hoping, you know, right after Friday the 13th, it would have been popping. Right. Especially since uh, Sarah Winchester had a strange obsession with the number 13. Um, she had a lot of references to the number 13 throughout the design and architecture of the home. Um, whether it was 13 bathrooms, certain staircases having a certain number of steps that led up to the number 13, certain rooms with 13 ceiling tiles and... 13 windows in one of the bathrooms. 13 windows in one of the bathrooms. Did I hear right that the amount of fireplaces in the uh, Hall of Fires was 13? I believe so, yeah. So, a lot of references to the number 13. And she had a weird obsession with the symbolism of the spider web. Uh, a lot of the architecture in the home referenced a spider web or was just overtly in the design of a spider web. Apparently that was her favorite spiritual symbol according to the tour guide, which I found interesting. Um, which I made reference to Christy once we finished the tour. I think honestly Sarah Winchester was just the first goth and had a, a interesting obsession with just dark strange or macabre imagery uh, the spider web stained glass windows in the bathroom were probably the coolest thing as well as the spider web uh, gate for the entrance yeah those were absolutely cool the wrought iron gate was one of my favorite touches with the giant uh, old english w right in the middle of it for winchester um, that's pretty much baller status if you ask me I'd love to have something like that when I become a creepy old um, strange man living in a giant mansion one day. Well, I'll earn a thousand dollars a day from Winchester stock and you can do that. Well, there you go. Alright, well that's it for this interview guys. Stay tuned for more content about Sarah Winchester and the Winchester Mystery House. Alright girls, so we just finished the tour of the Winchester Mystery House. What did you guys think? What was your favorite room, Haley? My favorite room was the little girl's room. What was your favorite room, Harper? The auto bedroom. What was your favorite thing about the little girl's room, Haley? My favorite thing is because she she had like um a seat for her and like there was a art station because I really like art and stuff, so that's why I liked her bedroom. What would what did you, what was your favorite part of your favorite room, Harper? Because it does have a lot of beautiful walls, a beautiful wall, and I like it. You guys like that um, special wallpaper with the carvings on it? Yes. It's very nice looking, huh? Did you guys feel scared at all while we were there? No. Did you see anything that you thought was weird or strange? No. Not really. But because there was a door leading to a kitchen sink. And if you walked into it, you would fall in the kitchen sink. Eight feet down, right? Yeah. And there was also a door to nowhere that went outside, right? Yes. And I, I thought I saw like a door. 
crap. I'm not winning. What did you want to say, Harper? Um, um, there was a door that leaded to a roof nowhere. That a staircase to... that led to the roof yeah. and went nowhere? Yeah. yeah. Do you remember why the tour guide said she made a bunch of stuff like that in the house? No, actually. <clears throat> do, you, do you guys remember the part where he said a lot of people believe that Sarah Winchester built those things to confuse the spirits? Yeah. Okay. Many paranormal investigators, researchers, and experts believe that residual hauntings are the most common type of haunting. Such hauntings are believed to be more prevalent than most people realize, and the large majority of paranormal activity reported falls under this category. If you are so inclined and are of curious enough mind to venture out on your own and start investigating haunted places, or even if you need to self-diagnose your own personal haunting, be careful not to confuse this type of activity with the opposite type of haunting, an intelligent haunting. An intelligent haunting is any type of paranormal activity resulting from an aware or sentient ghost, spirit, entity, or energy that actively interacts with its environment. Basically, a ghost or entity that is aware of your presence. Types of intelligent hauntings may be sentient ghosts, poltergeists, shadow entities, or the often most feared entity, the demonic type. So now that we are a bit more familiar with stone tape theory residual hauntings, and intelligent hauntings. The question is, how can one identify a residual haunting when the, in the presence of strange activity? Here are a few listed examples. Apparitions reported in a residual haunting will be like moving pictures or a video recording and typically will be seen in the same spots, walking down the same hallway, appearing in the same window, doing the same motion or action over and over without change. Oftentimes, these repeated activities will also usually occur around the same time of day, but not always. Residual haunting entities will be unaware of the living people around them. Such cases do not have any interaction between the ghost and the witnesses and will often occur whether in the presence of people or not. Strange sounds such as footsteps, voices, knocking, tappings, and rappings are common with this type of haunting. Residual hauntings will not involve missing or vanished items such as those incidents common with intelligent or poltergeist type hauntings as there is not to believe to be consciousness present on behalf of the entity. While windows or doors may be opened and closed, it is believed to be because of energy expending itself, not because it is physically being manipulated by ghosts, spirits, or entities. Locations conditioned for residual hauntings act like giant storage batteries, saving up impressions of sights and sounds from the past. Then, as years go by, these impressions appear again as if a film projector has started to run. 
No one seems to know how this might work exactly, but there are many theories. Some theories have connected atmospheric conditions to residual activity. It has been suggested that perhaps barometric pressure or even temperature may have something to do with hauntings becoming repeatedly active. Some have noticed an increase in paranormal activity in the winter months when more static electricity is naturally in the air. Some think it may also have something to do with the phases of the moon. Since the full moon has been known and proven to affect the ocean tides and the mental psyches of humans and animals, it is also a good possibility that it affects hauntings too. One of the most promising theories behind residual hauntings involves water. Tying in with stone tape theory, it is often reported that residual paranormal activity that there often may be high levels of humidity at the location, as this seems to be a possible sign that a residual haunting is taking place. It's been suggested, as per stone tape theory, that water embedded in the location may hold a recording of energy that is manifesting and replaying itself when conditions are right. As you may recall if you're a long-time listener, I touched on this briefly in the La Llorona episode of The Monster's Lair and gave a brief talk on evidence suggesting that large bodies of water may act as a battery for paranormal entities and energies to pull from in order to better manifest. Thousands of haunted places are associated with water, and as I also briefly covered in the La Llorona episode, Many of America's supposedly most haunted cities are located where large bodies of water are part of the local geography. Many of them are on rivers or lakes or have an underground water source nearby. Since water is a great conductor of electricity and and especially EMF or electromagnetic field, a type of energy that is believed to be paramount in paranormal activity, it is not a huge leap to believe that water can be a conductor for hauntings and paranormal activity. Stone tape theory and the main issue in using this as a sole explanation for ghosts is that no one has ever found a satisfactory explanation or unequivocal proof as to how the haunting that is recorded on a location occurs or how the solid fabric of the location Excuse me. Be it wood, stone, concrete, limestone, water, sand, dirt, sediment, or volcanic rock was able to retain the energy of the events that took place. Alas, to this day, stone tape theory remains just that, as a theory, and not as a scientific fact. However, that to me is the fun of this whole thing. Pursuing answers, ideas, and explanations for the unexplainable and trying to answer an unanswerable question. In doing so, we learn that the journey is much greater than the destination. And remember, folks, no matter how terrifying your entities, your hauntings, or your activity may be, it's not nearly as terrifying as humans who... As we know from this podcast, 
are the real monsters in this world. Thank you, listeners. This has been episode 10 of season 3, the season 3 finale. As always, I am your host, your master of ceremonies, the trailer park monster himself, J.D. Hutchins. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope you enjoyed this past season. Even though it was shortened and snake-bitten from the very beginning. But my promise to you listeners is that season four will be one of the best yet. So stick around. Stay tuned. Watch out and keep an ear out for that bonus content coming your way very soon. As we all know, Halloween is just around the corner. And we take Halloween very seriously here inside the Monster's Lair. And even beyond Halloween, I may have some special surprises popping up here and then before March when Episode 4 kicks off in all its glory. Thanks, listeners. And we'll see you next time right here inside the Monster's Lair. The Monsters Layer podcast is made possible by the following people whom I'd like to credit. Logo and cover art design, Chief Alan Bailey. Music, sound beds, sound effects, and audio go to the following people. First and foremost, I'd like to thank the band Poor Man's Poison from Hanford, California for allowing me to use their song Devil's Price as the official Monsters Lair theme song. Poor Man's Poison consists of Tommy McCarthy, Ryan Hacker, Mike Jacobs, and Dustin Medeiros. Additional credits go to Polly Manners, also known as The Bearded Breed, host of The Bearded Breed podcast, and frontman for Metal Messiah for allowing me the use of songs from his band. The Mad Thinker, Mike Morgan, for original beats and sound beds. Find him on Instagram at MadThinker with the number three in place of the E. Credit also goes out to Zachary Mueller, the owner of Void Productions, for background music, sound beds, and sound effects. Special thank yous go out to the following people. My wife, the dark, lovely, and witchy Christy Miller, for constant support and understanding of me doing this passion project. My daughters, the heathens, Haley and Harper. My partners at the Myriad Podcast Network, the Bearded Breed, Polly Manners, the Dark Knight, Brandon Davis, Dink Lord Trap God, Christian Miller, also the bass player for the Moonjacks, the Nerdsman, and Abyss, a.k.a. Zachary Mueller of Void Productions. Thank you to Thomas Burrell and Burial 13 Apparel for support and appearances on the Monsters Lair. Shout out to Huvi Desayuno and Big Ren the Legendary from the Hard Camera Podcast for supporting the show and always shouting out my show on the air. Rest in power, Tom the Nightmare, Thomas Cunningham, the Monsters Lair former co-host and my longtime friend. And last but certainly not least, Thank all of you, the listeners, for always tuning in and for your continued, constant support of the Monsters Lair. Thank you. The Monsters Lair is a proud member 
of the Myriad Podcast Network.